hear everybody's conversations about this. Um, I wonder what you might have said. I know for my group, we definitely talked a lot about um, kind of going overseas to study or even, I know for me, like my family coming from a different place from Hong Kong originally and them being homesick. Um, yeah, so again, a warm welcome to you, especially if it's your first time. Uh, my name's Abby, and it's my pleasure to be reading God's Word for you today. Um, today's Bible reading is from Philippians 3, uh, verse 15 to 4, verse 1. And before we begin, let me pray. Dear gracious Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you for how you teach us in it, um, of Jesus and who he is, Lord. Um, I pray that you would please um, teach us and remind us of our citizenship in heaven today, Lord, and of the hope we have. I pray uh, for Matt that you would please help him to teach from your word with clarity and, um, and winsomeness, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This is God's word. All right, thanks, Abby, and good morning, everyone, again. Uh, I don't know what sort of stories that you shared just then about being homesick. Uh, I remember, for me, uh, the first time I felt really, really homesick was uh, being away for three months in East Africa. So I don't know if any of you had that uh, story as well about being overseas for a decent period of time. I think you do have to be away for a fair amount of time. Like if you're away for a couple of weeks, you're probably not away long enough to, to have that deep homesickness. But uh, I remember being away for three months, being away for three months in a culture uh, so vastly different uh, place uh, with lots of poverty. Uh, where it's dangerous, where uh, life just seems so much harder, just even for the locals uh, living there in their slums and, and doing that kind of thing. Uh, so I was away for three months, and I reckon after about the first month, it really started to hit me, right? First few weeks, everything's new and exciting, and you're just kind of taking it all in, and you're just trying to understand it all. But about the end of that first month, I definitely started feeling really homesick. And so I don't know if you were kind of sharing some stories of that, just that deep longing just to be back home in the comfort of your own home with the culture that you understand, with the people that love you around you. Now, I don't know if you talked about this, but I distinctly remember some of those funny things you start clinging on to as your little uh, snapshots of home. See, I remember being away in Africa and uh, the thing that kind of was my little symbol of home was a 
Wheels magazine. A magazine about cars. I'm not even, even really that big into cars. Um, I think I bought this at the airport because I, I knew I needed to buy a car when I came back home. And uh, uh, so I grabbed this magazine and for some weird reason, just, uh, you know, pictures of turbocharged Commodores just reminded me so much of home. You know, I remembered other little things. Uh, it was a phone call from home, and you know, back then it wasn't just as easy as FaceTiming someone. No, a phone call from home probably cost about twenty or thirty dollars per call, per call. And then I remember a friend who came up and uh, joined me and uh, the couple of friends I was travelling with. And uh, anyway, he brought like half a suitcase full of Tim Tams, right? Like, which is the absolute ultimate uh, kind of souvenir from Brisbane, uh, from Australia, and the thing that kind of reminded us of that. So I wonder what that feeling of homesickness was like for you. Maybe it was traveling. Maybe it was, I've said, migrating as a family. In fact, maybe even here this morning, you're new to this country or new to this city, you moved from over uh, interstate, overseas, and you're just getting used to it. I was talking to Phil just saying, he talked about, you know, it probably took him three years before Australia started to feel like home. Now, I want you to just cling on to that feeling for a moment, to just cling on to that longing. Because something that we're going to see here as we delve into this part of the book of Philippians is we're going to see something of Paul's homesickness. But Paul's homesickness is something that's a little bit different because it's not the homesickness of uh, being away from home, although Paul is certainly away from home, uh, probably sitting in a Roman prison right now, uh, a long, long way from home for him. But actually uh, Paul is very homesick but he's homesick away from Christ if you remember uh, Paul all the way through he's talking about his desire to be with Christ that to live is is Christ and to die is gain that even if he should die in this prison he would go home to be with Christ and so this morning church we're going to be asking that question are you homesick are you homesick? See, I think a lot of us will think of, of ourselves as homesick. I mean, particularly maybe if uh, Brisbane is your home, you've been here for a long time, uh, you haven't kind of, uh, you've just kind of gotten comfortable and used to life here in your home and the comforts that you have. Paul's going to challenge us. He's going to challenge us with that view. He's going to be, he's been challenging us really all the way through this book. Uh, in fact, Michael kind of brought us a great sermon last week and uh, really highlighted some of the stuff here. In fact, if you just kind of go back, um, uh, back a few verses, you see how much uh, Paul just has this heavenly perspective. See, chapter 3, verse 15, just read on with me. All of us then who are mature should take a, such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. See, what is the view that Paul is talking about? What is the view that he's saying you need to take on? And, and, and if you're mature, this should be your view of life. Well, it's actually what he said there, just those verses before, verse 13. He said, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, all of what Paul's talking about, and really one of the big themes all the way through Philippians, 
It's a fact that Paul is saying there is an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective, that if your eyes and your view is centered on that, it's going to change everything about the way that you live now. He's saying you won't be left to shame. You won't feel like you've missed out. He says, no, your joy will be made complete as you go to be with Christ in eternity. But Paul really wants to challenge us. Do you see life that way? Is that the way you understand life as you look about your life and your work and your rest and your play and your leisure and, and, and all those little parts of your life? Is that the lens in which we view everything? An eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective. You see, for Paul, there's only one goal, and it is heavenward. The goal of being with Christ. And it should challenge and shape the way that we think about our goals, your study goals, your career goals, your financial goals, your family goals. All of those things should come under, through, be viewed through those lens of heaven. But he doesn't kind of just say that as an abstract thing. He actually goes on to say, well, actually, do that as you model, as you follow the model of the apostles, of us. See, join, have a look at uh, verse 17 with me. He says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, I learned something uh, quite interesting uh, recently. Uh, it's interesting uh, because uh, it's not so much about human behavior. It's about elephant behavior. Elephant behavior. All right? Uh, elephants are, are a very, very social animal. Right? They live together as family. They spend a lifetime together. Uh, they shape and model life together. Uh, an interesting thing happened uh, in South Africa, Kruger National Park. Uh, what had happened, there'd been a bunch of young elephants who'd been taken away from their parents for uh, various practical reasons and kind of brought up just as a bunch of young uh, adolescent elephants. And what they discovered is actually uh, these elephants went completely rogue. They went crazy. Right, they, when they went and became kind of teenage, you know, equivalent uh, adolescent elephants, they went and trampled to death a whole bunch of rhinos. I mean, I'm talking rare endangered rhinos. They just kept finding these rhinos turning up dead and trampled. It wasn't from poachers, their horn, everything was all intact. And what they discovered was it was this bunch of young elephants. And so what they worked out is that um, uh, when they brought back in some of the elders of that elephant flock, that behavior started to go away. And what they actually needed was actually the example of those older elephants to show them the way, to show them what it means to live peaceably amongst, uh, as a flock, to live peaceably amongst all the other animals of the jungle. Now, I think that's an incredible example to think that um, even elephants need that example for them. Uh, and I think it's a, little, uh, it's a little analogy for us as well. So if you see what Paul was saying there, actually follow our example and follow those who equally live out the example. And what he's talking about are those who clearly have that picture of heaven on their minds. And that's the thing that they live for. That's the thing that, that shapes everything that they do. And he's saying, look up to those. Look up to them. Follow them. Now, I actually think this is a phenomenally challenging concept if you think about it. Uh, now, in, in lots of ways, you know, everybody follows someone. Everyone's got some example in which you follow. Uh, I think generally, from what I've seen, generally we all love to kind of look up to that, that person who's just that little step ahead of us in life, you know? 
Uh, and so, you know, if you're a kid uh, in Sunday school, you actually really genuinely look up to those teachers. And at a certain age, actually, you start to look up to them even more than your own parents because, well, they're those cool teenagers or they're those cool young people who are the people that you aspire to, to want to be one day. Or as a teenager, you might start to look to those young adults. Or as a single person, you might go, well, hey, what's that next stage look like uh, to be married? Or if you're a married person, or if you're, you might look up to those who uh, have family. And if you've got family, you might be looking to those who've been through that and are now empty nesters. And actually what Paul is saying is that, is that everyone's got a role here. Everyone's got a role in the family of Christ to keep modeling what it means to follow that's why everyone is valuable within the family. That's why everyone's important and needed. That's why we've all got to consider what is the kind of model, what, are we, what example are we leaving for those who are following after us? I think that's a daunting thing, it's a challenging thing, but it's also a very rich thing, isn't it? Because actually if we're doing that well, we can keep modeling that to each other and keep passing it on for the following generations. And so Paul says, follow the example of those who follow our example as apostles. Now, here's the negative flip side, okay? See, Paul says that actually many have lost their way. Many have lost their way. Verse 18. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny of destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, it might be easy to kind of immediately look at those verses and kind of go, oh, well, he's talking about the world out there, you know, the non-Christian world, the pagan world out there. That's kind of, you know, all about, you know, worldly things and, and earthly things and there's enemies to, to the church. But actually, I think what you'll find in the context of Philippians... He's talking about those from within the church. He's talking about those who are opposed, who, who by a word say that, yeah, we are followers of God, but who actually live a completely different way, who actually might who live as enemies of the cross. Why? Because they're focusing on something wholly different. See, what do you pick up about them? Well, they pick up on a whole bunch of things. Their focus ultimately is on earthly rewards. Their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. Instead of being focused on heavenly rewards, we all focus on what's coming here and now. Now, probably, he's probably talking about this kind of circumcision party, right? You see that all the way through Philippians. This people who are keep insisting that actually all of this, it's all about the, your, your image as a good religious person. You know, you've got to be uh, following the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to be uh, uh, bringing the right sacrifices to the temple and doing all these earthly religious kind of things and reaping earthly kind of rewards. But Paul says, no. No, it's not about that. It's about heavenly rewards. It's about that which you can't grasp hold of here and now. You know, I remember a, real, a well-meaning friend once said to me at uni, he said, hey, look, yeah, do, do the church thing on Sundays, you know. I do the church thing on Sundays too. But at uni, don't, don't talk about it. Don't, don't bring your Christian stuff here because, you know, it really kind of, I notice it really drops your street credibility here, you know. It's like the main thing, the goal for life of him was girls, it was parties, it was popularity. And it's like, yeah, I can go to church and do my, my church thing on Sunday, but this is, this is what life's really about, getting hold of those things. 
So Paul says, watch out for the pretenders. Those who claim to be followers of God and yet whose life is so focused on the here and now that actually uh, getting, whether it's getting rich or, 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 or doing things for your own benefit, they're the people to watch out for. It's not hard to look around to see how Christian leaders, yes, even leaders of the church have fallen in various different ways. It's always sad when that happens. So Paul says, watch out. But to get to our main point, and the main theme, as we've been talking about all the way through, is what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, I just want to think about this concept of citizenship for a moment. Um, you may, not, may or may not be a citizen here, uh, but for those who have become an Australian citizen, there's sort of this whole process. You've got to like, sit an exam to kind of understand how uh, Australia works, and, and, and then you're supposed to uh, you know, get up and you say your vows to pledge your allegiance to Australia. Maybe some of you have gone through that process before. You see, a citizen, by definition, what is a citizen? Well, a citizen is a person who they legally belong to a country and they also then gain all the rights and the protections of that country. Right? You think about Medicare and things like that. Now, citizens also adopt the culture and the practices of the nation or the kingdom to which they belong. That is, they tend to be now shaped by the particular country and region and, 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 and kingdom that you belong to. Now, it's not as fashionable to kind of be as patriotic uh, today as it might have been in the past. But in, in, in any sense, uh, when you're a citizen of that country, you do just tend to take on the culture and the values of that country. What does it mean that our citizenship is in heaven? Now, notice firstly that Paul's not saying that your citizenship will be in heaven no, he says your citizenship is in heaven now. It's what you have right now. It's not something that you earned. It's not something that you kind of did the right thing and passed the test. It's actually something that's, that Christ earns. And then he, he gives it to us. He imparts it to us by faith. So we've got this thing, this citizenship that we already have. In ways, Paul is saying that, hey, to the people that he's writing to, yes, you might be an earthly uh, citizen or a part of the commonwealth of the Roman Empire. But your real citizenship, your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And you might be a real citizen of Australia or of another country, and yet your real citizenship is in heaven. Your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And that changes everything now. Changes, and it should shape the way we think about things, shape the way we think about what our rights are in the future, that we have this place that's hold up for us in heaven. I've been uh, recently watching a really fascinating show. Uh, it's a drama. It's called The Americans. It's called The Americans. It's about spies living in foreign countries. And it's all about the whole process of, of having to kind of be that double identity, right? Because uh, these spies, they were uh, brought up to, uh, to fake, basically, being part of another uh, country's citizens so that they could ultimately undermine that country and, uh, and, and serve the interests of their home country. 
And there's a fascinating moment where one of the main characters, uh, Philip, he's, he's, offered, uh, he's offered $3 million to defect, to now work for the other country. And he really seriously agonizes over this because $3 million, that is enough to set up shop, to kind of make a pretty good life for himself. All he's got to do is denounce his country, share all of their secrets with the country that he might adopt. And ultimately, it takes his wife to remind him of his true allegiance, of his true citizenship. It takes his wife to remind him that there is a bigger purpose in mind here. We can't just be living for those little creature comforts. What's $3 million in the big scheme of life and history and of, and of the role that they play in all the politics of, of their country? And, you know, I couldn't help but feel similar, that we are foreigners living in a foreign land and yet being tempted constantly to give that up for the sake of the comfortable one. For all that we can grasp hold of here and now to live for those things now instead of remembering our true citizenship in heaven. See, what did Paul say? Paul said he was willing to give up everything because nothing matches the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. But there's a second part to that as well, isn't there? said, Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious bodies, our body. It's going to transform our bodies. Now, I'm starting to get to the age where you just start picking up injuries, you know, just by doing like normal life. I think I was just uh, picking my child up the other day and I kind of injured my shoulder and, uh, you know, I was catching up with a couple of blokes about my age and, uh, you know, this, that's the sort of stuff we start talking about, you know. What's, what's your injury? What's, what are your health things? And, uh, you know, you're, you know you're, you're, you're not the young, fit person that you used to be when you gather up with others of your peers and you just talk about your health problems. Uh, fun things to look forward to for all of you there. Uh, but uh, it's a reminder, isn't it, that our, our bodies are a, a key indicator that we're not going to live forever. You see, right now, many of you have been sick or you've been caring for someone who's sick. In fact, right now, there might be a chance that you are sitting at home because you're sick or caring for someone who's sick. Seems like it's the season for that right now, doesn't it? Uh, in, in our family, we've kind of gone down one by one over the course of this week. And my son Aidan had three days off school, which is totally unheard of for him. Now, it's frustrating, isn't it? Sickness is so frustrating. You're just at home, you feel horrible, you just want to get back to being able to do stuff in life and, and get on with the job. But let me tell you why I reckon getting sick every year might actually be part of God's grace to you. Because getting sick every year reminds you that you're not going to live forever. Getting sick every year reminds you that this body that you inhabit of skin and bones and flesh and organs is slowly deteriorating. Getting sick is a reminder that actually this world that we live in is broken. That things are falling apart, not just our bodies, but our whole world is fracturing and falling apart in lots of different ways all of the time. And so as you take that moment to be sick and kind of, uh, you know, pitying yourself, cast your eyes bigger. Cast your eyes bigger. Look forward to the day. And remember that God has 
promise that he will transform this lowly, broken, ailing, sick body of yours and will bring you to a place in which there will be no more sickness or pain or crying. And so I see, I see how that can be a, a real grace to you to kind of keep pointing you heavenward, to stop focusing on this short earthly existence that we have. See, there's this great quote, and it comes from Hope Explore, this course that we do run regularly, because I think actually this picture of Christian hope that we have is something that's so attractive, isn't it? This is what Rico Tai says in that course. He says this, Christian hope is a joyful expectation of the future based on true events of the past that changes everything about my present. I love that as a quote. Love it. What is it? We've got this great, joyful expectation of the future. Why? Because Jesus has already died on the cross for us. He has already ascended into heaven. He has paved the way for us. And what does that mean? It changes everything. It changes the way we see life. It changes the way we do life. It changes the things we live for. See, friends, when you're sick or when life's just a struggle, remember that hope. Remember that hope. Now, in the last week or so, uh, you may know this, but uh, one of my personal heroes, Timothy Keller, passed away recently. Uh, a few years ago, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, really nasty cancer, uh, one that very, very few people uh, outlive. But I love just reading some of his own reflections. He's been writing quite a lot about death and sickness over the last few years, if you, as you can imagine. And uh, I found it just really, really uh, enlightening to kind of just learn from someone, a great Christian thinker, who's been thinking a lot about death and about the future for him. Let me read out um, a few bits of, of stuff that he's written lately. Here it is. Rather than living in fear of death, we should see death as a spiritual smelling salts that will awaken us out of our false belief that we will live forever. When you are at a funeral, especially one for a friend or a loved one, listen to God speaking to you, telling you that everything in life is temporary except for his love. This is reality. And as this spiritual reality grows, what are the effects on how I live? One of my most difficult results to explain is what happened to my joys and fears. Since my diagnosis, Kathy and I have come to see that the more we try to make heaven out of this world, the more, grounded, uh, the more we grounded our comfort and security in it, the less we were able to enjoy it. Kathy finds deep consolation and rest in the familiar, comforting places where we vacation. Some of them are shacks with bare light bulbs and wires, but they are censorship locations, the spaces for which she longs. My pseudo-salvations are professional goals and accomplishments, another book, a new ministry project, another milestone at the church. For these reasons, we found that when we got to the end of vacation at the beach, our responses were both opposite and yet strangely the same. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, from sun on the water and flowers in the vase to our own embraces, sex and conversation, bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. This change was not an overnight revolution. As God's reality dawns more on my heart, slowly and painfully, and through many tears, the simplest of pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded 
that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good to find gift that it is. You see what he's saying, that as the reality of heaven draws closer and, and, and more and more vivid for him, he realizes this goal is not to make heaven out of this earth and this earthly life that we have. We've already got that. And you would think that that means that he just lives a really dour, quiet life. No, what he says is that now he enjoys life even more. He treasures it. Precious, how precious are those little simple things in life? Because he's more heavenly minded. No holidays or work achievements can achieve that joy. In fact, the more you idolize success or leisure, the, more, the less you, you appreciate them. See, cancer was a real wake-up call, yes, even for the great Tim Keller. See, church, let's not wait till that moment. Let's wait till the cancer diagnosis before we start living heavenly-minded lives. See, church, we should be homesick, shouldn't we? So my question to you is, are you homesick? Are you homesick, longing for that heavenly eternity that we will live with Jesus one day? Yearning for the day in which we can take up our full role as citizens of heaven. Yes, the world has so many good things to enjoy. But if we keep loading up our hope on getting the right marks, getting the right career, finding the right boy or girl, getting the right house, getting into the right school, whatever it is, friends, they will not bring us the joy that we hope for. In fact, take it from Paul. Use whatever temporary life that we have left on this planet to serve others so that they might find their joy in Christ. See, when you grasp that, you can truly be the joy-filled servant, the one whose joy is found in Christ and in helping others know Christ, that your joy might be teaching little ones. It might be serving in our music teams or might be serving in the many multitude of ways around in our church. See, when you grasp this, church, we will then indeed start to take on what it means to be that true citizen of heaven. Now, I get that that challenge is hard. See, I think part of the challenge there is that you might be a citizen of heaven, but you've never been there before, have you? You've never been there before. In fact, the author of Hebrews really highlights this, and he writes about the fact that actually the Christian's life is lived by faith. So you read this. All these people, these are the heroes of faith in the Old Testament, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, church, that's the Christian's life. That's the life of faith. Longing for that better country. Longing for the place that God has stored up for us. Now, I love, there's a little quote from, uh, from a book called uh, The Last Battle. It's sort of the last book in the, in the whole Narnia series. And there's a moment where the characters finally get to that moment where they're kind of just on the cusp of what they call the new Narnia, the new Narnia. 
I want you to just kind of put yourself in, that sh- in those shoes as uh, you imagine just being on the cusp of that place. The new Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed it up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. You know, church, I think it's a beautiful snapshot. I think even C.S. Lewis couldn't quite kind of capture all of the reality of what it would be like to kind of arrive at the place that feels home, that you'll just know when you get there that this was what you've been looking for all your life. See, Christian, you know where you're headed because of the cross, because the cross guarantees your citizenship. It's that country, that heavenly country that we belong, that we long for, that we hope for. Indeed, I think as Paul finishes himself, this is his encouragement. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Well, church, why don't I pray that we would do just that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been given a beautiful picture of Paul's longing to be with Christ, that he points us to our true citizenship in heaven. Father, might we be just in awe and wonder of the country that we look forward to, the one that you have prepared for us. Father, might we not be distracted, might we not be be tempted to give up our citizenship for the temporary pleasures of now. Might we stand firm, might we look forward, might we long with homesickness to be home with you forever. But Father, in the time that you give us here, might you help us to use it, that we might live for Christ, that we might live to serve you and your people. But Father, in the deep longings of our heart, might our eyes be set on heaven, and might we live in a way that continues to live that out in every day, in every week, in all of our decision-making, that we might set heaven before our eyes as we make them. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, as a way of continuing our reflection on that, we're going to actually partake in communion together. So if you haven't got one of those little cards,